Amen. Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35 and going through the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35 and going through verse 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is the Bible about? When you read the text of Scripture, do you read thinking that it's about you or that it's about God? Your answer to that question is going to directly impact what you expect me to say this morning about this text. It's one of those stories, one of those passages, where we've heard it so many times that we can easily get bored by it heard it so many times that it just becomes rote. It doesn't matter to us anymore. We don't think of it as, impo as important. We think of it as a children's story. We skip over the meaning. And we find ourselves in the story. We skip to us. We hear him calling the storm, and we go through all the other meanings and immediately get to how he can make our lives better. How he can calm the storm for us. And I think that that's true. He can. He does. That's in the text. That's there. But I don't think it's the primary point in the text. I don't think it's the primary point of why this story is in Scripture. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about Jesus. So skipping to how he can calm whatever metaphorical storm that we might be going through actually, I think, misses the most important parts of the story today. Today's sermon is going to feel a little bit different than most of my sermons. Uh, because there's very little structure to it. I think the story itself, the text of Scripture, seeing and understanding exactly what happens in this text is so important and so clear and so powerful when you understand it that I don't need to introduce many other points to it. I don't need to have some other outside structure to make you see the beauty of the gospel in this text this morning. So let's just walk through the story together. Let's just read it, hear it, Add some color to it and understand it a little bit better. In the hopes that when we understand it, when we see the primary point of the text, we will also see the primary point of this book, the primary point of our lives, the primary point of all reality. So let's get into the story. Let's focus on the setting, just these first two verses. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So Jesus here is the man in charge. He's the one who initiates everything that happens in this story. He had been teaching them all day, and at the end of the day, he says, let's get into the boat and go to the other side. He initiates the journey from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. He'd been giving them parables about the kingdom, about faith, and he knows exactly what's about to happen, but he wants to continue his primary work, that he would go on to the next town, that he might preach there also, as we saw in Mark chapter 1 a few weeks ago when we were going through that. 
See, this storm doesn't happen to Jesus. Jesus happens to the storm. He goes out and meets it. He's in charge. He is sovereign over the entire situation. And he does this for both the disciples' benefit and for ours. So as we're getting into the story, I need to comment briefly about the Sea of Galilee itself. It's a body of water that's not really that large. When I think sea, I think like ocean. This is basically like a large lake. It's shaped roughly like the, the continent of Africa. It has kind of a, a kickoff to one side, and it goes down to, to form a rounded bottom. It's about eight miles wide at its widest point, but it's surrounded by high cliffs on one side and low pasture on the other. So this sea, because of those conditions, is known, was known then, and is still known today for its violent storms that can crop up quickly. Because storms happen when you have water and different temperatures colliding. You have warm water coming up off the Sea of Galilee with the moisture, and then you have cold air coming off, out of the mountains and meeting them right over the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee, even today, has very strong storms that pop up very quickly and catch people by surprise. That's what it was known for, just like we see in our text, just like what we see in this story. And we can see also that Jesus, when he gets into the boat, when he goes out to meet this storm, there's not a lot of preparation that goes into this. It says that he went just as he was. There was no prep. There was no planning. There was no pomp or procession. He didn't say, hey, let's go get a bigger boat. He said, let's go to the other side that I might preach there also. He simply stopped teaching and got in the boat with his disciples. And that's important. We need to understand that today. Because if you don't understand that point, you're not going to understand the magnitude of the miracle that we see. See, I've been to several magician shows. I love magic, close-up hand magic, card magic, street magic, any of it. I think it's the coolest thing on the planet. And I was at a show one time where the guy on the stage was talking, and then all of a sudden, there was a helicopter behind him. They, they, dropped the, they dropped the drapes, they dropped the curtains, and there was a helicopter right there. And that's incredible, right? That, that feels like real magic. But he had planning and prep and a stage and who knows what back behind him to get that helicopter there. Jesus didn't have any prep. He didn't have any planning. He got on the boat just as he was with his disciples. Because just as he was, just who he was, was going to be more than enough. So that's the setting that we're getting into. That's what's happening as we get into the story. But then we can see the storm in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling. The boat was already filling. See, this boat that they were getting into wasn't a boat like I think of a boat. When I think of boats, I immediately think pirate ship. That like when they when man made boats, there was a floating log, and then they had pirate ships, and then there were aircraft carriers. That's like the, the progression in terms of boats that people get into. If you have multiple people in a boat, it has to be either a pirate ship or an aircraft carrier. Those are your options. But that's not what they got into. See, this boat would have been just a normal fishing boat in this time at this place. It's about 27 and a half feet long. It's about seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet deep. I measured it. That's roughly from the piano to the organ. That's roughly from the front of the stage to the base. Four and a half feet tall is about the size of this pulpit. That's the boat they got into. No sails, no decks. A simple boat 
And then they crammed 13 grown men into this boat and set out on the sea. Jesus and his disciples. Okay, that doesn't sound like fun to me. I'm not one for boats. I'm not one for water. I am way less one for boats and one for water when it's me and 13 men in a pretty small confined space. You add a storm. You add water coming into the boat. The boat filling. No, thank you. It's not what I want. I don't want to be rocking in a boat, wet, in a storm, scared for my life, against 12 other guys. <laughs> that doesn't sound like fun to me. That's the boat they were in. But in the midst of this storm, this great windstorm which arose, we can see that there was one who was asleep. Verse 38. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? See, there's a great windstorm. All these guys are packed in. It's a tiny little boat on not that big of a piece of uh, water. And there's one who's asleep on a cushion. Jesus is somehow asleep. He's not worried. He's a steady presence in the midst of the chaos. He's unshaken by the waves. He's unshaken by the boat in its precarious situation. He's unshaken by the storm. He is perfectly at peace to the point where he's asleep. See, the boat is filling. It's a small boat, and now it's filling with water. These guys are in real trouble. It's a real storm and a dangerous situation. A lot of men in a tiny boat in a crazy storm is not a good situation when you have to row yourself out of that storm. And yet Jesus is asleep. A steady, calm presence in the midst of that terrible storm which was real. Because he's the caring teacher. No matter how steady Christ is here, the disciples are not steady. Okay? They're freaking out. They are losing their minds just a little bit. Which honestly should only make us more empathetic toward them. For two reasons. One, who has never been afraid of a storm before? Thunder, lightning, water, wind, tornado, hurricane. Those are scary. I'm a grown man. Every once in a while I hear lightning and I flinch. When I was a kid, I couldn't sleep. It was terrifying. Who hasn't been afraid of storms? They can be scary. We're mortal humans. So when we're faced with something like a hurricane, something like a tornado, something like a great windstorm, there's a right and good amount of fear that comes with it because we are faced with our situation in light of the power of nature before us. So we can be empathetic with the disciples because storms can be scary. We should be empathetic with the disciples too because this isn't their first rodeo, right? Like they're grown men. They've seen storms before. At least four of them were fishermen. Storms shouldn't have been that big a deal to them. They've seen one before. So my guess is they don't freak out in this same manner every time there's a storm. They don't get this scared every time it rains. This storm had to really be something for this group of seasoned fishermen, these grown men, to be this afraid for their lives. Okay, as I said, the Sea of Galilee is not that long. It was evening, but they could probably see the shore. It's not that big a body of water. Even at the middle, you're only four miles from the edges. You've got hills and cliffs on one side. 
They weren't out in the middle of the ocean. They knew exactly where they were, and yet they were this afraid. So in their fear, in their panic, what they do is they turn outside of themselves to find another option, another solution. We don't know which disciple had the idea. We don't know how long it took for them to come to this decision. But eventually they say, hey, let's wake up Jesus, the miracle guy. Let's see what he can do with this. But notice that they had to wake him up, right? There's a storm with water coming into the boat, and yet Jesus is somehow asleep. Remember, the boat's not a pirate ship. He's not below deck. He's not in the captain's quarters. Jesus is asleep on a cooler in the back of the boat. Water was probably hitting his face. The boat was filling. His feet were probably wet. And yet they still had to wake him. And when they wake him, they're panicked, right? Because of their great fear. They are losing their minds. They are thinking that they're going to die in the storm. So they go up to Jesus, who's asleep, and it's like they grab him by the collar, and they say, Hey, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? There's a storm here. Come on, man. Don't you care? See, they, they didn't ask whether he knew. They asked whether he cared. They assumed he knew. They said he's got to be aware. Look at all the things he's known of. He has known the Pharisees' thoughts across a room. You're telling me he doesn't know it's raining when he's asleep? We know who he is. We know the, the power of his knowledge. So then they say, do you not care that we're perishing? What a question to ask the Lord of all creation who has taken on flesh for the salvation of these 12 guys in the boat. To turn to him and say, you must not care. How often is that what we ask God? It's not a power of his, it's not a question of his power, it's not a question of his knowledge. We know he's got the power of that. We know that he knows what to do. So what we do is we place ourselves as moral judges over the God of all creation. We say, if he had the power, and if he knew what to do, he must do something. And because he's not, how dare he? He must not care. Do we and our suffering even matter to him? And I get that sometimes it feels like it doesn't. If we don't keep the right perspective in mind, it may often seem in our day-to-day -day lives like our suffering, our troubles, don't matter to him. It feels like he's asleep. It, feel like, it feels like we're in the midst of a storm on the edge of perishing, and he's on a cushion, not paying any attention. See, this entire ordeal, which we see in this story, has a lot of similarities with the beginning of the story of, Noah, of Jonah. He's been given a call from God to, to go to Nineveh to warn them of impending doom. So then he goes the other direction, right? We've heard the story before. And he's in the ship. It's before he gets swallowed by the whale. He's in a ship, in a storm, and a great storm happens. And then look at Jonah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. They should be on the screen. It says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? 
Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. See, the mariners in that story, just like the disciples in this one, were wondering if the gods that they were crying out to cared. If they would spare just a thought to their situation. And what the sailors did in that story of Jonah is the same thing that the disciples do here. They went to the prophet. They went to the guy who has the power. They asked him to intercede on their behalf with the God who could intervene. They said, teacher, don't you know that we're perishing? Isn't there something you can do about this? Can't you pray? Can't you act? Their only hope was that this God would give a thought to them that they may not perish, that they may not die at the hands of this storm. And luckily for the disciples, luckily for us, the one they called upon was the one who is the caring teacher, and he does care. He does act. He moves. So here we see the salvation of these men in the storm. Verse 39. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. When he acts, that's the solution to the storm. When they wake him up and ask him to move, he does. He does four things here, which deliver his people from the storm. As the master of creation, as the one who is sovereign over nature, he awakes, he rebukes the winds and the seas, he stops the storm, and he brings a great calm in the midst of everything that's going on. He wakes up. He's not asleep at the wheel. They do have to wake him up, but he does wake up. While he may have been sleeping in that boat, he was at that same moment upholding the universe by the word of his immovable power. He was at that same moment causing the moisture in the air to form into clouds and those clouds to bring forth rain and lightning and thunder. He's the master of creation. Even before he calms the sea, he is master over the storm. And when his disciples rouse him, he wakes up. When he's called upon, he answers. Because you see, he does care. He does not desire that his people would perish. In fact, his desire is that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So yeah, it may at times appear that he doesn't care. And if he cares, then maybe he must be powerless. And, and if he's powerful, then he cannot be good. But yet he is infinitely good. He's the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God, who does care for his people. So he awakes, and when he awakes, he rebukes the wind. He not only gets up, but he acts, he rebukes the wind. He says, if the sea here were a man, and Jesus bows up to him and he laughs in his face, he rebukes the wind. How dare the wind put his disciples in danger? He rebukes it. He says to the sea, peace, be still. It was his voice which spoke at the beginning of all creation, said, let there be light, and there was light. It was by his word that the molecules of hydrogen and oxygen came together to form water for the first time. And those same molecules here are powerless before their creator. When he speaks, they act. He says, jump, they say, how high? He speaks to them now again.
and they cannot help but obey their master and creator. I think here he says the words, peace be still, specifically as a callback to Psalm 46.10. You've probably heard that verse. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Peace, be still, and know who I am. You see, a more modern, a more loose translation of these words would sound more like, and he looked and said to the sea, hey, shut up. Don't you know who I am? Don't you understand who is in front of you? He acts. He rebukes the wind. Tells the sea to be at peace. He commands it. And when he does, he stops the storm. It all ceases. Immediately, the storm stops. Like that. Like it had never happened. That's the power he wields. He can go from sleeping to rebuking in an instant. And the forces of nature are powerless to stop him. But when he stops the storm, he not only stops the storm, but he brings a great calm. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. And not only stops the storm, he brings that which is calm. It's a great calm here. Then instantly, it was a beautiful evening. Just as if this had never happened. To all appearances, it would be like the storm was never there. But because it had happened, because the storm was there, when he had delivered his disciples from that storm, the disciples were changed by this experience. He not only stops the storm, but he brings the calm. I was reminded this week, as I was reading and preparing for this sermon, of a song that uh, we haven't introduced here yet, but I bet we will one day. It's called Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. I'll, I'll read the first and fourth verses too. Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor in the Fury of the Storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me, and my sails have all been torn, in the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind, and life secure. And the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. That's the kind of God he is. He not only stops the storm, he brings the calm. And that calm will be better for the many storms that we may endure in this life. He is the God of not only but also. He not only mercifully withholds his wrath against our sin, but he also graciously gives life to his people. He came not only that we might have life, but that we might have life more abundantly, life to the full. He is the God of not only, but also. He not only stops the storm, but he brings the calm. Which brings us finally to the point of this story, the Savior, the final two verses. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, we've seen the bulk of the story to this point, the setup for the action, the, the storm which arose and its severity, the man who was asleep on the cushion, the salvation from the storm. And now we're here, we're at the focal point, the focus of the story, the focus of the universe, 
the one who saves from the storm. And this one who saves is the compassionate comforter. See, after he calms the storm in verse 40, he doesn't do what any other man would do in this situation, right? He doesn't turn and say, I was asleep. Naps are not that easy to come by for me these days. I would appreciate it next time you let me sleep. He doesn't do that. He doesn't turn and admonish them. He doesn't turn and yell at them. He doesn't do what you would expect him to do in this situation for not believing in him, for daring to ask him if he cares. By this point, he had healed people. He had turned water to wine. He had raised the dead. Did they honestly think that he was going to drown in his sleep? He would have every right to turn and yell. But I don't think he does here. He turns, and I've got to imagine it with a twinkle in his eye, the sunset gleaming off the still waters around them. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? These last few weeks, we looked at the parables that he was telling them that entire day. Parables about the kingdom, about faith, that just the smallest amount of faith, just a faith the size of a mustard seed, would grow in his kingdom to great heights, to great lengths. And they have already forgotten. It was earlier that same day. And the storm came, and it all went out of their heads immediately. But rather than yelling at them, he reminds them who he is. He encourages them toward a greater faith, a deeper faith, a faith which bears with it the weight of the storm, the weight of the trial, and it's come through to the calm on the other side. What a compassionate comforter who bears with his silly disciples, who still have so little faith. But he's not only the compassionate comforter here, he is the God-man. Verse 41, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples here, well, they were slightly losing their minds during the storm. They all the way lose their minds after he calms the storm. This isn't them asking a calm, philosophical question. Who is this? What is the nature of this man who is before us, who is able to calm the storm? They are losing their minds. They're going crazy. Who is this guy? Even the wind and the seas obey him? What does that mean? What kind of authority does he have? To control nature in this kind of way, in this fashion, was beyond their comprehension. Nothing like it had ever been done before. You see, the sun stood still for Joshua. That happened. There was a drought and then there was rain for Elijah. But those were just men. The, the stories that happened there clearly happened by the power of God through prayer acting in those situations. It was men asking God to intervene and then he does. So God is the only one they can fathom who can act in this way. And then Jesus just stands up and does it. Peace be still. The storm stops. He's the one who speaks. It's by his power that the storm ceases. So they're going crazy here because, wait, if only God can control the storms, and this guy stood up and controlled the storms, what does that mean? Who is he? 
And they don't answer it explicitly here, but we have the answer in Scripture very clearly that he is the Christ. He's the God-man. He is both God and man, truly God and truly man. In one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man. That's who he is. That's why the wind and the seas obey him, because they always have. He created them. The only right response when we encounter this kind of power, this kind of intervention by the God of the universe, is to worship. The disciples lost their minds a little bit here, and we should lose our minds a little bit more often than we do. When we read this story, and we just say, yeah, sure, he calmed the storm. Like, no, 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 he calmed a storm. That's crazy. That's awe-inspiring. That should inspire us to worship. A great parallel to, to this story that we can see in the Psalms is Psalm 107, verses 23 to 32, which should be on the screen. It's kind of a longer reference than I usually give. I think it's a helpful understanding for what happens in this storm, but also what happens when God acts in the lives of people. It says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. The only response when you see the work of God in this way, in this fashion, who he is and what he's done, is to worship. We may be proud. We may think that we're morally superior. We may not be paying any attention to him. But the one who controls the waves will not be ignored forever. So the storms may come, and when they come, let us remind them, let them remind us who he is, the kind of power he has. When we call out to him, he always answers. He's the God who is sovereign over the storm, and also the God who delivers from the storm. And when he's done so, how we should react, how we should move, is in worship. We should thank him for his steadfast love even in the midst of the storm. We should come together to praise him for delivering us, his people, from the storm. So is the story about you or is the story about God? Well, I think like all the Bible, it's primarily about God. He's the point. He's at its center, not you. But because of who he is, when we learn about him, it matters to you. Because he's the God who has sent his son to reveal himself to his people by saving them from whatever storms may come. So when we think about the storms of this life, I don't want to discount the physical ailments we have. Those are real storms, and I think he does care that you are perishing. I don't either want to discount the emotional or spiritual storms that we encounter. Those are real storms, and he does care that we are perishing. But how you know he cares? Even in the midst of those storms, 
even in the ones where he chooses not to deliver us, how you know that he is both good, perfect, holy, all-powerful, and caring for you is by looking at the cross. That's when he delivered us from the storm. That one single act of supreme goodness and deliverance has made all these other storms pale in comparison. His people were surrounded by the storm of sin and death. And rather than sleeping through that, he acted. He sent Christ. Christ lived a perfect life in the midst of all our storms, surrounded by all our sin. He never failed. He never sinned. He died the death that we should have died for our sins, though he committed no sins. He was submerged under the power of sin and death, dead and buried. But then he rose. He rose victorious. And in that rising, in that perfect life, atoning death, the glorious resurrection, he calmed the storm of sin and death. He delivered his people once and for all. If we would only have just a little faith. If we would only believe that that's what happened. What a great God we serve, who is mighty to save from the storm. In closing, I'm reminded of a phrase that I think about all the time. Uh, I saw it for the first time on an episode of The West Wing uh, when I was watching that show in high school. And I looked it up. It was uh, on a plaque on the president of The West Wing, and it's actually a plaque that was on the president of John F. Kennedy's desk. It was originally a prayer written by a fisherman as he went out to sea. And it says, O oh God, thy sea is so great, and my boat is so small. O oh God, thy sea is so great, and my boat is so small. I think that's a beautiful picture of the reliance that we have on the one who saves in the sea. That no matter the size of our boat, no matter the strength of the storm, he is the one who controls the waves and the sea, and he acts for his people. All we have to do is turn to him. All we have to do is ask. And because he is the good, caring, gracious God, he does act, and he will act to save. I hope you see that today. I hope when you read this story, you'll remember the craziness all around and the stillness of the cross. The craziness of the storm and the stillness of the calm. The fear of the disciples and the love of their Savior. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for this day. Thank you for delivering, for delivering us from the storms. Not only the, the real storms that we encounter in life, our physical ailments, our troubles, our sorrows, but primarily for saving us from the storm, our own sin, our own death, by awaking and acting, by moving, by delivering, by calming. Thank you for that. For us to see that and trust that. That though we may still ask, do you not care that we are perishing? 
Let that be a question that we already know the answer to, that you do and you have. Let us to see that and know that better today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.